Welcome to the Apple Insider Podcast. This week, we're going to talk about the iPhone 13 and satellite communication delays possibly coming to the Apple Watch Series 7 and MacBook Pro, plus all the digital ID and driver's license stuff that's going on in Apple Wallet. And joining me to discuss all of this, my friend Wes Hilliard. How's it going, Wes? Pretty good, Stephen. Uh, hopefully, misplaced wallets will be a thing in the past very soon. <laughs> You were going to say future might be future and past because people might not be using this digital ID, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that. It's been a little controversial. We're also going to talk about Apple's press releases about the whole developer thing that happened and what quote unquote concessions they made in the uh, court cases. So anyway, we'll talk about that in a little bit. First off, want to hit this iPhone 13 satellite thing. A couple people corroborated this. The feature that they are saying is that the iPhone 13, which might not be the 13, it might actually come next year, but that the new iPhone would have the ability to send emergency text messages via satellite if you are in a remote location or a location that doesn't have cellular service. Now, this would be a big deal because if you were ever somewhere without cellular coverage, you're maybe driving along a road on a road trip or whatever in the middle of nowhere and there's no cell phone service and you get in trouble or you break down, you would actually be able to send a text message to someone using satellites, which ideally it would be coverage anywhere in the world. There's kind of some confusion, you know, if it actually comes out, whether or not some countries would have restrictions or if it would be available literally everywhere, everywhere. There was a little confusion about, oh, I'll just be able to use my phone like normal if it can just talk to satellites. And that's not the case. Communicating via satellite is pretty difficult. And if you look up like what a satellite phone actually looks like, it's got this massive antenna. So you can actually have the ability to send like voice back and forth and use it as a phone. So it's not that you would just have data wherever or you'd be able to talk on the phone wherever, but it would allow SOS or emergency text messaging, being able to send an emergency signal to like 911 using satellites. So I thought it was a really cool feature. Again, might not be this year, but coming in a soon iPhone. Thought that was pretty cool. I don't believe this is a consumer feature. I mean, I, this hasn't been spun anyway because Apple hasn't announced anything, but I believe this is for emergency responders. I mean, think about all the right. wildfire stuff going on in California and how the major complaint has always been uh, no cell signal, no uh, ability to contact first responders and stuff like that. Even the first responders are having trouble communicating in these areas because fire, lots of stuff blocking the signal or just dense populace blocking the signal. But yeah, it's become a serious issue. And I think this would be like the perfect solution for that is to have access to a direct satellite connection. Now, like you said, though, like it requires this giant antenna. I mean, I'm doubt that Apple's going to do any like release a specific like first responders iPhone or whatever. But uh, I could see this being like a case that you attach through the lightning port and it just throws a giant antenna onto the phone and as needed basis kind of thing. Like if you're a first responder or if you're someone who likes to, I don't know, go boating in the ocean and you right. need to have a satellite signal, you just slap this thing on there, probably a very expensive accessory, but yeah, this is the kind of partnership that would enable that. And uh, I'd be very interested in seeing this actually go into place. Yeah, for sure. Again, there's some rumors going out about iPhone event and whether that event has been delayed or not. So won't comment a ton on that, but just keep your eyes on Apple Insider. As soon as any event is announced, we will let you know, of course. It also looks like there might be some delays in products and features. First of all, the Apple Watch Series 7 there's been rumored features about a blood pressure sensor coming to Apple Watch and a thermometer that would 
help in fertility planning and all that. These features though, Apple stock kind of spiked earlier this week on like these features kind of being rumored, but it looks like these health related features might not even come this year, any of them. Mark Gurman in his Power On newsletter said that blood pressure sensor is definitely not coming. I think on Twitter, he actually responded to someone too. No chance the blood pressure sensor is coming this year. So these are exciting features, but we're probably gonna have to wait till 2022 or later on some of these things. Again, we're waiting on blood pressure monitoring, this thermometer to aid in fertility planning, and the elusive glucose monitoring that many people are waiting and hoping that the Apple Watch is able to do in the near future. Let me throw in some conspiracy theories here a little bit. Oh yeah, please. Because uh, we're right in the middle of what we call like crazy season, right? Or uh, We're about to enter it, yes. Yeah, we're right, right about at the beginning of Apple's events stuff and everything. Basically, everyone wants to get their version of the story out there. And if you follow Rene Ritchie at all, he's mentioned this a million times, the Kramer reports from a thousand years ago about how market manipulation works, especially in news media. And I mean, the media right. sources may not know that they're a part of it, but a lot of reports come in to these sources claiming that they're an insider saying uh, what they need to say, usually with you know good credentials. Either Apple's trying to get a message across, say, to tamper Apple Watch Series 7 expectations. No, this isn't going to have you know glucose monitoring or blood pressure or it's pundits trying to uh, get control of some of the stock. Oh no, Apple Watch Series 7 delayed, stock goes down, time to buy, right? So right. it's just one of those things where this happens every year. There's always a thousand rumors leading up to it. And then immediately right before the announcements, we're told, oh yeah, all this stuff is actually going to be really bad or delayed. Uh, don't look into it too much. And it is a little bit convenient that these reports come out you know, days before an Apple event. Now, in addition to what's going to be happening this fall, the MacBook Pro, we've talked about it many times, the updated 14-inch and 16-inch MacBook Pros with M1X or whatever the next, the higher-powered Apple Silicon chip will be, might be delayed. Digitimes Asia said that chip shortages have again hit Apple, and they've cited some unspecified industry sources, but Digitimes is saying that it might be pushed back even farther, and so we might not see these new MacBook Pros until maybe even later this fall or even next year, which I'm really hoping not, but whenever they do come out, it seems like there will definitely be constrained supply, much like the M1 iPad Pro, especially with that mini LED, if you tried to get one of those and it was long shipping times if you waited too long to pre-order that one. But my MacBook Pro might be delayed. Again, we'll let you know as soon as we hear anything else about release times of these devices. Yeah, you're, you're itching for one of these, aren't you? You want to buy one immediately. <sighs> I do. I do. I'm, I'm really interested in that 14-inch MacBook Pro, what they're going to do with it. But I'm also going to be torn any desktop Apple Silicon that comes out if it's, you know, super powerful iMac comes out at the same time. I don't know. It'll be a tough decision to make. So. We'll see, but I definitely want to see what it's going to be like and probably going to get it day one, 14 inch. We'll see. All right. Another big announcement that came out earlier this week was that Apple bought classical music service and app Prime Phonic. Prime Phonic was a music streaming service geared specifically towards classical music and listeners could pay Prime Phonic a separate subscription for their stuff. But Apple has actually bought the service. They will be shutting down the Prime Phonic app on September 7th, so shortly after you hear this episode, but it will come back next year and Apple is going to launch an additional first-party standalone app just for classical music. I imagine you'll still be able to listen to classical music in the Apple Music app, but they're also going to have a standalone app taking advantage of some of Prime Phonic's catalog and technology for classical music. I thought this was very interesting. One, I'm into classical music, so I'd love to see that Apple is actually putting 
an emphasis on the genre, but also listening to classical music in the Apple Music app can sometimes be a frustrating experience. I actually saw a tweet from Ken Cosienda. If you don't know who that is, he wrote the book Creative Selection. He was on the software keyboard team for the original iPhone and iPad. It's an excellent book if you want to kind of see some of the behind the scenes Apple stuff that went on. But Ken Cosienda, he put a screenshot on Twitter. I'll link to this tweet, but basically showing most classical music albums, if you look at it in Apple Music, you can't tell what track is which. You know, the, the image that he had, and I'll make this the chapter art for the podcast, but it says Goldberg variations for keyboard and then dot, 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 ellipses, and then no other information is viewable in the song list. So you have eight tracks here, but no way to know which track is which, and they all basically say exactly the same thing. So not a great experience in the direct Apple Music app. So if there is a standalone app that Apple makes just for classical music, hopefully they can reinvent some of the ways that tracks are displayed and how the titles appear. So very exciting. Also curious what technologies like Lossless and Dolby Audio will be used in this standalone app, and if this would be an additional paid tier to the Apple Music subscription. Again, Apple's been huge in the services thing. We've got Apple TV Plus, you got the Apple One subscription bundles. We'd be curious if they would actually charge more for this standalone classical service. What do you think, Wes? I, I believe this is uh, a part of the Apple Music subscription. I don't think Apple's going to charge more money for it. it. It wouldn't make sense. They're also trying to do this nicely by giving current subscribers to the classical music service six months free of Apple Music, which seems to be their go-to. Right. It is funny that, you know, classical music, why that specifically? And from what I've heard, it it is one of those genres of music that's just very difficult to to portray in a digital medium, especially since each song titles a paragraph long. And <laughs> yes. Usually there's, you know, a thousand different versions of it. I'd, I'd say you probably have the same issue if you're into a jam band like Fish or something where, right. you know, you have a 45-minute set list and it's one song. <laughs> but yeah, what could you imagine a Apple Music app just for fish. We we could get on that. <laughs> well, who's it? Marco Marco Arman would love that. Oh yeah, right. Maybe all about it. Uh, no, but a classical music app. I'm I'm interested in it just because you know that's it's always fun. I'm I'm a big kind of into jazz. I like playing jazz, especially as a background music or just something to have on. Um, but classical is nice too. I I visit that every now and then. But I'm not big classical listener. Maybe like you, but definitely piques my interest. I, I want to see what, how Apple designs this app, what they're going to do with it, and maybe if this opens the door to other types of apps from Apple Music. I mean, could there be a family of apps? How often does Apple come out with new? system-wide apps. It's kind of crazy to think that they chose this specifically, unless, you know, it's an Apple executive pulling the strings. Somebody in there really <laughs> likes some Mozart and uh, right. wants an app for it. So <laughs> That would be interesting. It is interesting that of that genre, like of all the music genres, classical is going to get its own app. Now, I do have one theory, which I would love if it goes this direction, but when it comes to classical music performances, like full orchestral or choral performances, there's not a great way to like watch it unless you just look it up on YouTube. You know, there's not like a, a streaming service or if you want to watch good concert experiences for classical music. Although I will say the Berliner Philharmoniker or the Berlin Philharmonic, they actually have their own streaming service and app for their orchestra. 
And it is an incredible experience. Like when it comes to technology and the classical music genre, the Berlin Philharmonic, like do it right. Like you can pay to stream their concerts live in their app and you can get it like Apple TV and on iPad. And they also do these crazy things where you can look at the score while a piece is being performed and the score will move along as you listen. And they also have like interviews with the, some of the principal musicians and some like background stuff on rehearsals. And so it's really like a, an all-encompassing classical music experience where you, if you're interested in the instruments and the orchestra and even the score, it's a great experience. So if Apple actually brings some of those things into this classical music app and maybe even like concert streams, which with the whole COVID thing, many, many live performing ensembles have not been able to be out there as much and perform as much in public. So they could really help out that entire genre. So maybe they will do more than just listening. Maybe they could also do some video and you know additional feature stuff too. Well, it's interesting just looking at Prime Phonic as it exists now. It is the all-encompassing app. It has the videos, it has podcasts, interviews, news snippets. Uh, stuff like that. Right. Whereas Apple Music, it's kind of aware that other Apple services exist. Um, right. I've whined about this on Twitter a million times. It's one of those things where if you like something uh, that Apple has, you have to go between seven different apps in order to enjoy all parts of it. You know, there's not one central location to find all the information about a specific thing. You know, Prime Phonic being classically music focused, obviously they have everything there that's focused on that. It would just be nice to see Apple go a step in that direction, maybe start actually acknowledging uh, that, hey, maybe having everything in one spot would make more sense for the user experience. Yeah, exactly. For the small niche of our audience that might be super into classical music, I know El Letrado on Twitter, he, he always uh, tweets at me when I start talking about classical stuff. I'll put some links to some recent things I've been listening to. Voces 8, or Vo I'm not sure how they pronounce it, but they're a classical vocal group. And I just recently discovered them and they're pretty great. On Apple Music, they have like the spatial audio and all that. So I'll put links in the show notes this week to uh, some classical stuff to listen to if you'd like to experience that. Yeah, before we move on from music, just a quick question. I saw this on Reddit, someone asking, you know, we've had AirPods Max for a few months. How are the owners feeling? Like, how are you and me feeling, Stephen, about these things? Are we using them every day? Do you think it's still worth the $550? Uh, what's been your experience with them so far? <sighs> oh, I wasn't ready for this, Wes. All right. Well, <laughs> snuck up on you. It did. Here's what I will say. I use over-the-ear headphones the most when I'm recording and producing podcasts, which I do multiple hours a week. And I was running into this issue where editing stuff with the AirPods Max, that it wasn't giving me an accurate and clean representation of the audio. And so I got into some several Twitter conversations with recommendations, and I went with these Bayer Dynamic DT770 Pros, these wired headphones. They're only like 150 bucks. And They've actually been really worth it for me when I'm producing podcasts. I'm using it now as we are recording it. And when I edit, I'll use these because I, it provides a more accurate, more accurate sound for what I'm editing, which is important. So when it comes to that podcast production, I was using my AirPods Max every week for that stuff, but I've now transitioned to these. Now for my everyday listening, I do enjoy using the AirPods Max. They still sound great, but I don't use them super often. I, I don't take them out a lot, but I also don't listen to a ton of music around the house. Like when I work and stuff, sometimes I'll play something on a HomePod, but I'm typically not like looking for a pair of headphones to put on. So I still think they're incredible. They sound great. I would tell most people for $550, I would not 
get them. If you can get them on a sale closer to 400, maybe in the near future, maybe around Black Friday, maybe they might even drop into the 300s area and you really want, and you listen to a ton of music and you really love spatial audio and your favorite artists in Apple Music have spatial audio for their tracks and you really want some noise canceling headphones, I do think they're a great option. I would see and maybe wait till they fall into that 300-ish area. And then I think they're definitely worth it then. But I don't know about 550. But talk to me. How are you feeling about them? Well, I still use mine quite a bit. Uh, I've actually still go out of my way to listen to music uh, through headphones relatively frequently, at least a couple times a week. And I've noticed that they're great for certain things like uh, video games and stuff because I've been playing a lot of Apple Arcade games and trying those out, um, especially on the iPad. So uh, I just find they fit in nicely with the Apple ecosystem. And um, obviously, I'm, I'm the perfect test case for these things. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. Like uh, for $550, it's still a lot of money for a set of headphones. So unless you're really looking for something that's um, over the ear, great noise canceling, good audio reproduction, like that you're going to use all the time, that kind of money, you know, it brings up like, do you really need to be spending that? Or would you be better off with even a pair of Beats headphones that Apple also makes for a few hundred dollars less. I, I will say though that for me it's been worth it. I've I've really enjoyed them. Overall, I don't regret buying them. And uh, I'm actually kind of interested in seeing if we get any iterations on these headphones. I don't know that I would run out and buy another set just because Apple added another color or something, but right. uh looking at this whole lossless thing and the issues surrounding it, I'm kind of interested in the idea of Apple introducing AirPods Max that support lossless, and I might actually make the jump, even though I probably can't even hear the difference. It would be interesting <laughs> to to try. Yeah, I I will say though, as far as like audio production stuff like that, where you're working in podcasts and everything, totally makes sense that you would want something a little bit more straightforward. I mean, these things are obviously heavily tuned to produce a specific sound and apple's done the same tuning as they have with HomePod. where if you're listening to apple music the music files have metadata attached to it in order to produce reproduce audio in a specific way if it's going through the airpods max so like that kind of stuff would get in the way of uh you know audio reproduction whereas like a hundred dollar set of cans that lets you just hear the stereo output from a microphone like would make much more sense for a podcast environment so i'm with you there yeah, and I think one, now that I've used the AirPods Max, used these bare dynamic headphones, I will say the AirPods Pro still sound really, really good. And so if you want an Apple pair of headphones that sound great and do good noise canceling, the AirPods Pro are a great option. I would maybe wait to see if an updated version comes out in the next month or so. But if you're looking to get one this holiday season, I would look at the AirPods Pro pretty hard. I will say My son, he's actually, because I wasn't using the AirPods Max as often, he was like, can I use them? And I was like, yeah, right. (laughs) So he's been using the AirPods Max and he has, his his review is the the noise canceling is incredible and they don't push on his glasses, which has been his complaint with other over-the-ear headphones. Oh yeah. So for those two reasons, you know, if that's a big deal, there you go, AirPods Max. Oh yeah, but AirPods, I use those things constantly. They're always in my pocket and it's still insane to me that all these years later, I just have this thing I can pull out of my pocket, put in my ear within three seconds. I'm listening to audio from my phone, no wires, no issues. It's just 
kind of wild looking back to before these before airpods even not even just airpods pro and think about how many barriers there were to just getting music or a podcast in my ear and all the different headphones and things that I tried and different solutions I had in order to get to music where this just removed all of those barriers and just says, here's some music, bam, in your ear, done. That magic is still there for me. I don't know. It's probably worn off for a lot of people, but it's still just like, man, like these things sound good and I carry them around in my pocket all day and don't even notice it. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely if you haven't had an AirPods uh, set of AirPods or AirPods Pro yet, I definitely still recommend looking at those, especially since there's probably a new set coming in the next couple of months. Yeah. One last note on the AirPods Max. When they come out of the box, when you press the noise canceling button on the headphones, they cycle between noise canceling and transparency mode. Transparency meaning you can hear everything around you. Noise canceling means like active cancels the noise around you. Now, for some people, noise canceling can be like a weird head feeling because of what it's doing to the sound and your ears or whatever. And it doesn't bother me too much, but prolonged wearing of them, I was like, I don't want to have noise canceling on for hours and hours. And you can jump into the AirPods Max settings when they're connected to your iPhone or iPad. You can go to Bluetooth, hit the little I next to AirPods Max, and you can actually enable the option puts like normal as one of the things that it cycles through. So neither noise canceling nor transparency mode. They just are headphones and they're not doing anything weird with the sound around you. They're just playing stuff, not noise canceling, not doing the transparency thing. And I did find that if I was going to edit any podcast on it, or if I was going to wear them for a prolonged period of time, having that middle option of no noise canceling and no transparency, I actually enjoyed it better. And when it came to accurate audio reproduction that that setting was better for me when editing podcasts. So you can do that on your AirPods Max if you have a pair and you want to try that, jump into the settings and enable the the normal or the nothing mode, you know, neither noise canceling or transparency. I literally never use that mode. <laughs> yeah. And I get it. Like I didn't use it for a long time either. And again, if you're buying it for noise canceling purposes, you wouldn't, but if you're in a quiet room and you just want to have it off, you can do that. Hey listener, It's me, Stephen Robles again, and this is actually the only episode this year that did not have any sponsor spots because it was Labor Day weekend, but I just wanted to take this moment and thank you, the many listeners who, one, support the sponsors on the show, many return and do many weeks of ads because you guys actually get their stuff and support them, and that's great because we only have sponsors on this show that we really believe in and that I have used personally and have used their services and checked them out. And so we do believe in all of our sponsors. So one, wanted to thank you listeners for being awesome, supporting our sponsors and tuning in every week. The episode has been growing over the last year and a half. And so just wanted to offer a thank you. And if those of you who have done five-star ratings and reviews in Apple Podcasts, that really helps out the show. We've been in the top 30 and 40 shows pretty consistently over the last several months. And again, that's thanks to you guys. And if you want to support the show and get ad-free episodes, we have sponsors lined up for the entire rest of the year, which is amazing. But if you would like to have an ad-free experience, you can support the show at patreon.com slash Apple Insider. You get a little special RSS feed that you can put in your podcast app. And I put ad-free episodes there. Or you can actually hit the subscribe button right in Apple Podcasts. You can even do a little free trial and try out the ad-free experience. Or you could be some of like our super listeners, support the show every month, 
and listen to the version with ads. Those of you who do that are incredible and I totally get it because our sponsors are awesome and they're products that you would probably want to know about. So once again, thank you for listening and supporting the Apple Insider Podcast. We really appreciate it. I really appreciate you guys interacting on Twitter and in the Discord. Again, thank you so much. And now back to the show. All right, so we need to talk about digital IDs and driver's license and Apple's wallet app. The news was that Apple had a press release and they talked about the first states here in the US that are gonna offer Apple Wallet for state ID and driver's license support when iOS 15 launches. Arizona and Georgia are the first states that will offer support for these digital driver's license and IDs. And then there's six other states that will follow after them, which are Connecticut, Iowa, Kentucky, Maryland, Oklahoma, and Utah, which I don't know. I feel like these states were so random. Like I was expecting like New York or California or half of these. I didn't even expect to adopt it at all. Honestly, like considering Georgia is one of the first states is uh, honestly baffling to me. Yeah, it was strange. I was thinking like Maryland or North Carolina, you know, some like Northeast coast states and West coast states like Washington, Oregon. So anyway, I thought this was an interesting first slew of states. In this press release, Apple also specified how this is going to work and the security measures that are in place. And then people had lots of feelings about it. So at first, let me describe the process of if you're going to use this as your digital driver's license or ID, what it would look like in practice. If you were at an airport, let's say, and you're going through TSA security, and you need to provide both your boarding pass and your ID, whether that's a driver's license or a state ID, The idea is that after you've scanned your driver's license or ID with your iPhone, and it's now available in your wallet app on your iPhone, that the TSA agent or whoever who needs to approve your identity would have some kind of NFC reader, like an Apple Pay reader with them, and you would go to your wallet app and basically go to your ID, and like you were doing an Apple Pay payment, you would get your ID ready to scan and you would scan your phone NFC chip with theirs to confirm your identity. If you were doing something like buying alcohol or cigarettes and you would need to identify your age, the store or the gas station would ask for identification and you could scan your ID in an NFC type way in an, with an NFC terminal like Apple Pay. And so that's how you would use your IDs. This also works like Apple Pay where you can double click the side button on your iPhone or your Apple Watch and you can make a payment, but it doesn't unlock your phone inherently. Like if you had your phone and you double click and you do the face ID for Apple Pay, you know, I could scan for Apple Pay right now, but if someone tried to swipe up and go home, as long as my face is not directly in front of the phone, it doesn't give them full access to the entire phone. They're locked into that Apple Wallet experience. You know, they can't swipe up and go home and access my entire phone. So the idea is that it's not unlocking your entire phone. It's just enabling the ID and like you would Apple Pay. Have I missed anything in all that, Wes? You're not actually showing any data on the phone ever. I think the user has the ability to inspect the ID and go in and see what data is available. If the phone's unlocked and you 
go through face ID and everything, but that is not the intended use case. Intended use case will never have anything on the screen that has any identifiable information. No third party should ever be looking at your screen. You shouldn't have to show your phone to anyone or your watch. This is all terminal base. You're not going to be able to walk up to a bouncer at a club and show him uh, your iPhone screen in order to get into the club. Like they'll have to have a, an Apple terminal or a, a, a NFC terminal on them in order to scan it. Uh, that's it. And they'll probably won't even get a date of birth on their end. They'll get a yes or a no. What's actually happening is, yeah, the NFC terminal tells your phone what data is being requested. So right. you don't have to open your phone or anything. Like you said, uh, Apple Pay, it works the same way. If you put your phone near the terminal, it'll pop up the information on the screen saying this is what the terminal requests, your date of birth, your name, your address, your driver's license number, all that stuff. Whatever is being requested shows up first, then you can authenticate via Face ID. And then there's an encrypted communication between your phone and the uh, terminal and that data is passed over. And now what they see on their end hasn't been clarified, but again, I think they're able to inspect the information. Your photo on your ID is one of the items that can go across so they can do a visual verification that you are who you say you are. Um, but all of this is happening on their end. Your phone never leaves your hand, nor do they ever even see the screen. Because again, seeing the display doesn't give them any information, just a fancy picture that says driver's license on it. Yeah, let me read this from, this is the Apple Newsroom article talking about this says, upon tapping their iPhone or Apple Watch, customers will see a prompt on their device displaying the specific information being requested by the TSA. Only after authorizing with Face ID or Touch ID is the requested identity information released from their device, which ensures that just the required information is shared and only the person who added the driver's license or state ID can present it. Users do not need to unlock, show, or hand over their device to present their ID. So as you were saying, I'm gonna put this screenshot as the chapter art, but Apple showed an image of what it will look like. Basically, you scan your phone to this NFC terminal and a little card will slide up and says, Transportation Security Administration, TSA, the following information will be presented, not visually, but over NFC in that encrypted communication. And it says your legal name, date of birth, ID number, state, like this is the information that's going to be sent electronically. And then you double click and approve with Face ID or Touch ID to electronically send that information. The other person never sees your phone screen. Yeah. And just to be clear, this only has been implemented in partnership with the TSA, with air, with airport security. That is it. You can't, even when your state adds this system after iOS 15 is released, if you live in Georgia and you put this in your phone, that doesn't mean you can leave your physical ID at home and start driving around and show police this thing because it's useless. Um, and th no one's going to have any idea what you're doing because it's going to take a lot of time and education in order to get this rolled out. State laws are going to have to be passed to, to use this as a form of actual identification. So it's going to take a lot of time. Like, like your example of buying, say, alcohol, I believe in order for this to be a viable form of identity, there's going to have to be a law passed in order for that to actually be valid. And then on top of that, the... A grocery store or liquor store will have to have a specific reader for your ID to accept that encrypted communication. So it's it's all very, very early stages right now. Yeah. And it, it seems like it'd probably have to be a secondary NFC reader to whatever the payment processor thing is because I wouldn't say that. I, I mean, even these Verifone things that we have in Walgreens now probably already works. Uh, I have no, I have no idea the technical spec of these things. Like we'll have to call Verifone and ask them, but if they can accept encrypted communications, it's unknown. But if it requires 
new hardware to do this, it's going to take even longer because just as we saw with Apple Pay in the United States, it takes years for companies to update their cash registers. So uh, just because this becomes an ability, it is not a requirement (laughs) and they're not going to spend money on things they don't have to spend money on. Apple Pay launched like seven years ago with the iPhone 6 and it is, you know, just now being widespread Thanks to, again, not many things you can thank the pandemic for, but having NFC and contactless payments roll out faster across businesses was largely due the, to the pandemic. But yeah, still can't go to Walmart. Yeah, you still can't do it still at Walmart. Still can't go to Walmart. Still, <laughs> still can't go to several major outlets. Still can't go to most mom and pop shops. A lot of people won't even accept credit card still. I mean, uh, the United States is very behind in these kinds of technologies. So if you think that you're going to be, you know, throwing your driver's license out the window anytime soon, I, I hope you don't because no, no, all no, it's no. going to take, yeah, all it's going to take is one bag traffic stop in a county where they don't accept it. And the cop's going to be like, uh, what are you doing, dude? <laughs> Apple pay was made available October 20, 2014 from the iPhone six going forward. So yeah, seven years, still not totally there. So I think this ID thing is going to take even longer. Yeah, maybe like we're we're a decade at least away from even this being a possible use case. Uh, so l- let's be clear before we dive in to the police traffic stop stuff. This has been a concern people have brought up immediately when it was announced at WWDC, and it's been brought up again since Apple's updates on state adoption for the TSA thing. But there's been no word from Apple on if this will ever even be able to be used as a separate driver's license. These states have, you know, shown optimism for adopting this as a future form of identification, but no plans have been made, no timelines have been given. So everything about the police stuff is theoretical at best, and we're going to address it. It's just one of those things we have to keep in mind where pure speculation based on a fear of an eventuality, not anything that is even remotely close to happening. Right. So some of the concerns that have been raised is could someone, whether it's a TSA agent or many years from now, if it's approved to actually be used in traffic stops, if you get pulled over for speeding or whatever, the concern is that someone in the heat of the moment might force you or under penalty of like being arrested, hand over your phone for the driver's license information. Now I get that concern And we have seen in the last several years that there could be unreasonable requests made of citizens in, you know, unfortunate circumstances. So I totally get the concern there. I think, one, the implementation that Apple has used seems pretty secure and private. And even if someone, it seems like, had your unlocked phone, I don't know how much information they could even see. Like, it it does not show... Maybe you can help me with this. It, on Apple's newsroom article, doesn't show like if you go to the wallet app, once your ID is there, like let's say you as your iPhone owner have unlocked your phone and you're going to the wallet app just to see what's in there. If you hit the little I icon on the card and they flip over like some of the other cards in your Apple wallet app, could you actually see all the information that your ID has like visually there. I don't believe so. I mean, even debit cards don't show their full number when examining 
debit card on an unlocked phone, you only get the last four digits. Right. I would say like your name maybe uh, is visible, maybe even something unsensitive like a driver's license number might be visible or some of the numbers redacted, but this information isn't going to be readily available in any situation. So the idea that a police officer is going to demand your phone is useless uh, because they would have to demand that it be unlocked, which they aren't allowed to do even now, like the, there's laws preventing that. Secondarily, again, like we mentioned before, the data isn't presented when you do the double tap on your digital ID. So right. it just presents the information for the terminal to read. So if the police officer has a terminal, great. It'll say, hey, I'm looking for your driver's license number. You authenticate it, done. Tap your phone, you're, you're finished. If this officer does not have one of these systems and you only have a digital ID present, you're probably going to be you know, looking at some some issues legally anyway because again you can't be driving without a driver's license it's not allowed uh so right there's an article coming out on this you uh can read some of the things i've covered on this but basically for the foreseeable future until you, maybe you see the president of the united states step out on stage and announce that hey your iphone's fine just use that for everything but uh, it's not going to happen yeah you're going to want a physical id on your person at all times or at least in your car at all times right and so for that you know some people were saying, well, if I have to carry a physical ID anyways, like what's even the point? I would say like when I'm going to fly, you know, I might have my driver's license and passport as redundancy in case I need to physically present it. But if I'm able to like keep that packed away in a bag securely and not have to like fumble around with it as I walk through TSA and, you know, go through all that rigmarole, that is a benefit to me. Not only is it con more convenient than having to hold like these physical papers as well as my phone or whatever, but I don't have to worry so much about dropping it or leaving it somewhere. I will probably always carry that ID or passport or whatever, but if I'm just able to use my phone and keep everything else in my bag through that first TSA checkpoint and then through whatever detectors, like that would be beneficial. People are often quick to jump to conclusions. What is this silly convenience that you're seeking and asking us to go through all this trouble of implementing just to save you five seconds? And I don't believe it's even that. There's there's a lot to the system that's going to be beneficial for everyone. Uh, there's accessibility reasons for this being useful. Um, yeah. Everyone has their phone on them at all times. Having access to this form of identification for numerous situations will be useful, especially if you're differently abled or if there's situations where motor skills are at question, double tapping a button on your phone is a heck of a lot easier than finding a piece of identification, pulling it out and handing it to someone, especially in certain situations where uh, it might be a little tricky. But on the other hand, outside of accessibility, because I think this is going to be a huge accessibility feature outside of that, I believe, like you said, this is going to be good for situations like at the airport where you don't want to have to pull out your wallet fumble for an ID, show them that, put it back and and remember to put your wallet back in your pocket. Yes. Yeah. It sounds like a very simple situation, but if you've ever been in this high stress environment, it's very easy to put something down and not pick it back up. And that having this on your phone eliminates all of that and just lets you tap a terminal and walk away. Right. Uh, again, just removing friction from these systems is what's best. And if everyone already has a phone anyway, there's no reason why this shouldn't exist, especially if it's an optional system. Right. It'd be different if the government was announcing this and saying, you have to do this. Right. I think the question is, is why bother at all? I think it's just simply because it makes life easier, at least in certain circumstances. Yeah. I will say, if you are concerned about someone getting your phone or privacy security implications. You know, Gruber had an article where he was talking about these features as well, but he mentioned the ways to lock your phone and hard locking your phone, meaning 
Touch ID and Face ID won't work the next time you try to unlock it. You have to put in your passcode. I'll put in the Apple support article, but if you want to hard lock your phone, meaning the next time it unlocks, you have to put in the passcode or alphanumeric passphrase, you can do this on iPhone 10 and newer, iPhone 10 and newer, so Face ID iPhones, you hold the Siri button or the sleep button and one of the volume buttons for several seconds and you'll see the power down slider and SOS slider appear on your phone. And you can also do the medical ID thing on that screen. When you hold that and you get that slide to power off screen, your phone is now hard locked and it will not unlock with face ID or touch ID. You have to put in your passcode or alphanumeric passphrase if you do that. So you hold the sleep button and a volume button for about three seconds. It does it on the iPhone 10 or later. If you have an iPhone SE 8 or touch ID iPhone, you just hold the side sleep button for a few seconds and that screen appears. So you can hard lock your phone that way. And also there is a way to do an emergency SOS phone call and actually make like a loud sound on your phone very quickly. You can enable this by going to settings on your iPhone, scroll down to emergency SOS, and there is a call with side button option. And call with emergency SOS means you can rapidly press that side button five times in a row if you have this toggle on, and it will automatically dial 911. This also works if you hold the side button and a volume button and you keep holding it until it makes the call. But if you want it, a fast way to do it, enable that toggle, click it five times, and then 911 will be called automatically. There's also an auto call toggle in that settings screen. I know this works because my dad had his iPhone in some kind of holster recently, and he was working in the garden, and all of a sudden the cop showed up at the house. And he actually had to answer the door, wondered why the cop showed up, and they said nothing was wrong. Cops left. And then it happened a second time, about 10 to 15 minutes later, the cop showed up again and my dad realized the way that he was working was holding that button or whatever side buttons at the same time. And he was actually dialing 911 automatically and had no idea. So this does work. It will call 911. They will come to your location if you do that. So if you are concerned about security and privacy, learn how to hard lock your iPhone and be able to do it without looking, holding those sleep and volume buttons or clicking the side button five times to call 911. That would also be useful if you have to walk home alone or you take public transportation alone late at night a lot of times. And one final encouragement, if you're really concerned, instead of using a passcode with numbers, you can use an alphanumeric passcode that uses letter and numbers to make a longer password to unlock your phone rather than just tapping the big round buttons. I actually do that. I have an alphanumeric pass key or passphrase, whatever you want to call it, that's longer than the typical six number passcode. Given the COVID situation, I went back to a six digit passcode and I'm just not leaving the house enough to be concerned about situations where I might need alphanumeric instead. So yeah, but yeah it's definitely a better security uh, thing overall to do that. But yeah, uh, getting back to, I guess, the whole digital ID thing, I just wanted to mention for me personally, this, this, this is something I want to have happen. I don't want to carry a physical wallet anymore. I want my phone to do all the things. But realistically, looking at this timeline, I mean, I might be in a retirement home by the time this becomes available, like, uh, you know, widespread enough that I can actually go buy a beer using this system. So, yeah. um, 
<laughs> but that being said, once it goes beyond the TSA, once it actually reaches Tennessee and I'm able to put it on my phone, honestly, I'll be skeptical enough that probably keep at least my driver's license in my glove compartment of my car forevermore. Uh, I mean, maybe it won't be on my person. Maybe I won't have to carry a wallet around or, or whatever, but at least it'll be nearby if I'm at a restaurant and they're like, oh, we don't accept this. I can walk out and get it. You know, like it, yeah. have it in a convenient location where it's reachable. It doesn't have to be on your person, but I would recommend no one try to run too far away from that physical ID anytime soon. Yeah, for sure. So the other piece of big news that came out this week was that Apple had several press releases talking about court cases that were about the App Store, developers, some class action lawsuits. Initially, it didn't seem like anything really came of this. Apple did a late night press release last Thursday night, so we didn't cover it on the last episode. Basically, what's come out, though, is that Apple will allow developers to link out of their app to their website to set up an account and payment methods outside of the App Store. Previously, developers could not do this. If you wanted to set up a Netflix account, you wouldn't be able to open the Netflix app, tap a link, and head over to Safari automatically. You'd have to just know you have to go to a website, netflix.com, and do that. So for quote-unquote reader apps, which are like books, audio, music, newspapers, an app like Audible, You'll be able to create an account and set up payment methods and developers can link directly to those external payment methods. And that's kind of the big change that, if, that has come. And so not what a lot of developers were looking for, but it is an improvement for many. The other interesting piece though is that South Korea actually passed a law that they are going to force Apple and Google to allow alternate payment methods in apps. And this is something where Apple's been fighting this. We have not seen any kind of ruling or law like this in apps. Other apps have different payment methods. You know, if you use Uber or whatever, you can pay using their system and you're not using Apple's payment system. But South Korea is saying they're going to force Apple and Google to allow third-party payment systems in any app that wants to do it. And that's a big deal. And there's implications like the ask to buy parental controls and, you know, how do you unsubscribe if it's a subscription service and it's not built into Apple's system? So very interesting stuff. What were your thoughts on it, Wes? Well, I think Apple's just going to say no and move on. Uh, this is a thing going on in South Korea. It's, it's going through. A lot of people are against it. It could get overturned. Who knows? But right now, the consequence for not doing this is a fine. And I think Apple's just going to pay the fine and be, be okay with it. You know, Google will probably do the same. Uh, it's an important market for Apple. It's uh, it's home to their direct competitor, Samsung. I don't, I don't believe they're going to give up the market or, or pull out or anything, but as long as it's the alternative is just paying some money to the government, I think Apple will take that every time. I, I believe, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, I believe Apple already does this in a couple of countries, not specific to app store payments, but I think they just choose to pay fines uh, right. rather than obey whatever uh, specific local law there is for whatever arbitrary rule they've passed that month. So right. there's some precedents for this. I, I I believe Apple's completely fine with paying a fine as long as it doesn't turn into anything else. Like uh, again, like the country could push for a ban of the company, but I I doubt it. It's it's yeah. too much economic weight going on with with Apple and everything. So. Yeah, I don't see this becoming too much of a big deal. Will other countries follow suit? Maybe, maybe Australia, but I, I don't see it becoming a thing. I think Apple has enough uh, influence to push back against this and maybe block it from being a problem. Yeah, and the fine is 3%. That's South Korea's <laughs> fine percentage. So if you look at Apple taking at the least 15% of a developer's transaction, paying a 3% fine, Apple still comes out on top. So yeah, I think you're right. I think they'll just pay the fine. 
Yeah, and many developers voice their opinions on Twitter that this is really not big concessions for Apple, especially here in the U.S. One of the things that Apple said in the U.S. case was that developers were able to email their customers about setting up account and paying for the service outside of the app, which is like, thank you, Apple, that you allow us to email our own customers of the app. So again, developers had some strong feelings about it. Listeners and developers, if you're listening to this show right now, I would love to know your thoughts on it. Tweet at myself, at Stephen Robles. How does this affect you? Are you going to change anything about your app with these changes to the App Store or if you can make any of these changes? So we'd love to hear from you. Also real quick, Mark Gurman, again, in his newsletter, started to talk about Tim Cook and how he might be close to retirement, maybe even in the next five years. But Tim Cook wants to stick around for just one more major new product category launch. Mark is saying most likely it's going to be the AR glasses, not the Apple car. So that might be that product category that Tim Cook launches before he retires. And finally, I just wanted to mention briefly about the M1 MacBook Pro battery. We actually had an article on Apple Insider going up that talked about is it okay to leave your stuff plugged in a long time? And I'll put a link to that article in the show notes. But I use my M1 MacBook Pro docked in a bridge vertical dock pretty often. And I was getting a little concerned about battery life. You know, if I leave it there for multiple days in a row, is that degrading the battery? How smart is the computer in managing that battery level? And the other day as I was working on it, I checked the battery in the menu bar and it actually said it's it was holding at 81% battery It was using the power adapter to power the computer and that it wouldn't charge to 100% until 3 a.m. that night. So that was telling me a couple things. One, it's definitely using the power adapter rather than the battery. It was holding battery power at 81%, which is good for longevity of battery life. And then it wouldn't fully charge it until 3 a.m. based on my daily use. I knew it wasn't going to take it out of the dock. It was kind of predicting that it'll just wait a long time to charge it up to 100%. So that gave me some confidence in leaving my MacBook Pro docked for multiple days in a row. I still don't like to leave it in there like permanently. You know, I do take it out and use it. But if you like using your MacBook Pro or MacBook Air docked, but you weren't sure about leaving it plugged into power long term, seeing this notification in the menu bar gave me a little more confidence in leaving it plugged in and not having to worry so much about battery longevity. So if you have thoughts on that or on anything that we discussed today, the driver's license, digital wallet stuff, or some of the delays that might be coming, if you're excited about some of those Apple Watch health features coming in uh, several years, we'd love to hear from you on Twitter. Again, Wes and my Twitter handles will be in the episode description. You can follow us there. Also links to all the articles. Some of my recent classical listening is going to be in the show notes as well. And if you haven't yet, we would appreciate a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash Apple Insider or write in Apple Podcasts. You can even do a free trial of the ad-free version there. And don't forget to check out HomeKit Insider. That's our podcast that comes out every Monday. Andrew O'Hara and myself talk about smart home and HomeKit devices and the Apple Insider Daily Podcast where you get the top Apple news headlines in just a few minutes. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next time.